Welcome to episode 12 of the podcast series. Today we're chit-chatting with Javier Morio Alicia, Alicia, excuse me. Uh, and it's raining really hard outside. Uh, you might be able to hear it in the background, just a sort of, you know, the raindrops bouncing off roofs and things. Uh, it freaks me out a little bit, but that's all right. We'll survive. You know, the thing is, uh, no one really explained to me, how, like, when a tornado comes. They just mentioned that it might happen. So every time it rains or looks really cloudy, I always get a little nervous. And I refuse to go outside, but I should probably get over that. In any case, uh, we spoke with Javier about, uh, he's the president of SCIU Local 26, representing uh, lots of different types of service workers. And I think what is most powerful and interesting is the amount of growth that SCIU has had over the last several years. Uh, and then particularly fighting this trend in the current economy of subcontracting work and fighting those subcontractors, raising wages, and really representing a remarkable, diverse group of workers. At any meeting at SEIU, it seems that there's, there could be as much as many as five languages being translated and spoken, and it's just it's really incredible to be around and watch. Uh, Javier and I discuss uh, that, sort of the nature of subcontracted work, uh, the, the parent flooding in his office, so that's kind of funny. And uh, if you want to, let's see, I want you to follow Javier, but I don't know what his Twitter is. But you can probably find it. He's a funny guy, and he's, uh, yeah, he's always fun to be around. All right, folks, hope you enjoy the episode, and I'll try to be more consistent with the podcast in general. I'm a little behind, but it's all right. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Bye. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. There we go. Yeah, hey, How you doing? So your, your office is flooded today? Uh, yep. What is that? What does that mean? <laughs> there's a there's actually a uh, natural creek that that goes under this building that used really? to just exist as a creek, you know, feeding into the Mississippi. Right, because we're pretty close to the Mississippi where we yeah, are. Yeah, I forget what the creek is, but anyway, like so, when the water rises, oh. it comes up. Our... And there's no barriers to the creek, or there should be. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> there's this there's a a hole in the. Uh, down there that like the, 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 I don't know if they can't block it off or what but like when it gets high it just comes straight up to <laughs> so just a, like every so often yeah when it's flooding when did you get them fishing down there or? yeah <laughs> I haven't seen anything alive there yet but yeah. <laughs> that's awesome yeah. so uh so you're president of SCIU Local 26 Local 26 in Minnesota yep awesome can you tell us a little bit about that and for folks that don't know that yeah are listening from other parts of the country sure so Local 26 is uh is the SCIU property services union here in Minnesota so we are janitors security officers window cleaners all uh, kinds of service uh, work all in the private sector um uh, the vast ma- majority of our members all janitors and security officers work for uh, subcontractors. Okay. So it's a subcontracted industry. So it's very, um, although SCIU has been organizing, you know, subcontracted workers for now decades, like it, it, it has become really where the, this workforce is sort of at the forefront of the, where the economy is going because so, like, so much of the of the American workforce and worldwide now is contingent in some way, right. like either subcontracted or temp or seasonal or part time, and so. Um, that's the that's the work that that's our current membership and that's where our our organizing is happening now. And um, talk about maybe some of the the most recent victories for twenty six. So um, so so we've let's see we have we have close to six thousand members. Last year in our contract negotiations, janitors and security officers were in negotiations at the same time. And as a result of that, at the end of those negotiations, our union grew by about a thousand security wow. officers. Um, so was there we fifteen percent or something? Yeah, the downtown officers were already union, and then we organized the suburban officers, and, okay. so, and that, that was settled their first contract last year. Um, and then we have been um, part of this table, uh, Minnesotans for a Fair Economy, mm-hmm. um, that was part of SEIU's national campaign, Fight for Fair Economy. But um, here in Minnesota, we did it a little differently than most other SEIU cities did it. Um, we put together a table of like-minded organizations that, um, with sort of two basic commitments. One was of, of shared resources and mm-hmm. working with each other differently in a different way. Um, but the second was the shared analysis, that we were not going to, you know... Um, 
it wasn't about taking on a new campaign altogether, mm. but rather aligning our existing campaigns under a shared analysis of what the problem is in our society. And that problem being unbridled corporate power mm-hmm. and its you know, resulting income and race inequalities. And so, um, so we've now now that's been over two years that we've been uh, working organizing on, under it, that it, premise. Yeah, and so it's a it's a table of um, SEIU and. Um, uh, in a community organization, so it's a labor community partnerships, um, including Setul or Worker Center, um, the Isaiah, the coalition of, of um, over 100 congregations, uh, neighborhood, neighborhoods organizing for change, a community organization that organizes mostly in the African American community in Minneapolis. Um, so missing uh, Take Action Minnesota, like they do community organizing and political organizing as well, and. Um, and at different times, like Jewish Community Action and others have mm-hmm. been involved as well, and UFCW 1189. And um, so, and as a part of that work, we have, um, well, that what started out, like I said, like we were aligning our, our different campaigns um, along a shared analysis. We well, um, what, what did that come out of? Was there a concern before that folks weren't like supporting each other or? No, I think... Or it's just about what, mobilizing resources. Well, so I think in Minnesota, we're very good at coalition politics. Like people like are used to, progressives are used to working in coalition with mm-hmm. each other. And why I say it's not a coalition, but an alignment, is that a coalition, generally, you have like an issue that brings you together. Right. Like we need to win the minimum wage or whatever. Right. And then you either win it or you lose it or what do I short do? term. And same as like, yeah. like with political seasons. And we do that very well in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we don't have is a permanent movement making okay. infrastructure. And so you want that, to sustain long term, exactly yeah. right. And so, if you you know, at, originally the premise as we thought we thought of it as um, as when when we were aligning our campaigns, we we're doing something that like that the right wing has been very good at, right. which is that like no matter what skirmish they are involved in at any given time, their analysis of the problem is always the same. Yeah. The solution is always the same. They're it's very consistent. Big government, very big government, big government, yeah. big government, right? No matter what they're talking about, whether it's taxes, war, doesn't matter. Right. Big government. Um, and so, so the idea is that we would be, this would be our drumbeat. And when we, you know, when we started in 2000, God, when is it now? Uh, 11, the, you know, the, this was pre, um, it was, it was pre-Occupy and mm. our message was not, um, mm. Very well received, like certainly not by other others <laughs> in labor. It was thought to be too, too aggressive. Yeah. It was just too too, too aggressive, yeah. too anti corporate, and um, well, that language isn't at that time wasn't accessible. Not, to right. Well, that and, makes sense, and, right? and at the and at the time, people. I mean, we, like we some of us in MFU will remember the other day, like we were meetings where people would talk about how how talking about poverty is not, you know is not what we should be doing because it doesn't like it's we talk about middle class not poverty because it's not like it just it doesn't test well now all that is, <laughs> all that has changed dramatically yeah. right yeah but but then the only thing that occupy did um and in minnesota what it ha- what happened with occupy is that it actually the the occupation here in minneapolis uh, began exactly the week that MFE had a pre-planned week of action okay. that um, that included all of these actions on banks, on U.S. Bank and, okay. um, and Wells Fargo here in town. So the first week of Occupy in Minnesota looked a lot bigger. Like like all of the oh. press of that week was like like there's a rebellion against the bank, which there, <laughs> which there was. But we'd been planning our rebellion for months, right, right? Right. And so we were able to just like take care of that, op- um, you know, take advantage of that opportunity, right. really blow that up. Um, and so the idea is to like like build this narrative about unbridled corporate power, build this narrative about uh, inequity through all of our campaigns and that like that no matter what we're doing, that is what we were talking about. Um, and, to, you know, to, and it's, it's about movement building. Mm-hmm. And so like that table was the table that when everyone else in Minnesota, the smartest political minds in Minnesota were saying that the voter ID amendment was like, we, there's no way to win that, that, that it pulled at 80%. We couldn't defeat that amendment. That's why the Republicans put it on the ballot. Like we, as a the table, took that on. Um, and like the campaign structure of that campaign yeah. was like uh, on, on, on election night when we were declared victory, I remember looking on stage and Everyone on stage, not a single person was on the payroll of the campaign. There was right. not one person who was paid for by the by right. the campaign. All of the staff of that campaign were in kinded by MFE organizations. Right. Um, and so the money that was raised was used for uh, for television late in the um, late in the campaign. 
but we moved the dial from 80% approval for that amendment to dead even based purely on the field that Take Action Minnesota and um, and Isaiah were doing. Like Isaiah was doing. So it sounds like I mean, so it sounds like a lot of it was just kind of getting past this like technocratic understanding of how to work with people to right. really base building. Base building and also just understanding right that we all each organization not only do we have different bases, we right. also ha- are we are good messengers for different things. Right. Right. So Isaiah in the voter ID campaign, their their faith message on the sa- you know mm-hmm. uh, the vote being sacred, and and they they were speaking to faith voters as faith voters. They put it in their terms. But yeah, exactly. Still around the same issue. And um right. and so they can speak with the kind of moral authority that say an SEIU might seem to people as like oh just that's just cynical political play because they would well, just be like, confusing too. Right. Right. And right. so. So part of the idea is is to is for everyone to play up their strengths, build the capacity of the various of the different organizations. Right. You know, like back when we started, neighborhoods organizing for change like was barely an organization. They had sort of re um, a bunch of activists had reconstituted post the you know the downfall of Acorn. Mm-hmm. Um, there, but it was actually through MFE work that they really built their capacity and now are like a, this yeah, kick ass organizing yeah. uh, and you know machine um, yeah. and that came out of sort of all of this this work and similarly like Setul was already like a little you know worker center like that played way above its weight class in terms of like the <laughs> fights that they yeah. that they picked and stuff but now they've like completely blown up in terms yeah. of the, the work that they are that they're able to do yeah. so I mean hmm. I want to get back to that in a second but mm-hmm. let's then that you brought up Setul can you talk about just the relationship between SEIU and Setul and just mm-hmm. what, where worker centers are in terms yep. of mobilizing labor and mobilizing Mm-hmm. And organized folks. So when Setul began in Minnesota, it was part of it was a worker center that came out of the Workers Interfaith Network, and before it was called Setul, it was just it was the the worker center, um, and um, and it was it, when it began, it was sort of on a more traditional worker center right. model of people coming in more service oriented service oriented people yeah. come in and ha- you know would have a because they have a wage theft case or something like that. Right. What the organizers there, Veronica Mendez and uh, and and Brian Payne, always did from the beginning though was to sort of think of it as as organizers, and so the workers who came in with, uh, like a say a wage theft um, issue, that the commitment of Setul was we will take on your case to help you win your money back, but you have to sign on to another campaign, right. like to help someone else right. so they built this, sort this, of, this what they would describe as their leadership development exactly model. right yeah. and um and and i think and certainly back then and i think it's still the case that there are some unions that don't get the work that they do um the things i would hear back then like teamsters would be like well you know are, like when any campaign that took on like well are these gonna are these workers gonna end up in a union right right and if they're not gonna end up in a union then why should we be supporting their work because we should just be focused on putting people in the union mm-hmm. what i think those people were missing is that the reason the worker center movement has you know um has become as important as it is right. is because they are doing work that reflects the economy as it is not as we wish it was and so this contingent economy mm-hmm. of subcontracted workers of temp workers of the like that's the the low wage workforce that not only is most exploited abused and uh, suffers wage theft and all that it's emerging it's also been, and also extremely difficult to impossible to organize right. in traditional collective bargaining Right. right. That's the whole point of subcontracting. It's the whole right. point of using temp agencies is that you don't have that kind of a relationship with the workforce right. that would that could that a union could force you into or by organizing into into having a collective bargaining agreement. That's why they do it. Right. Um, and so the whole idea of like with the worker center and what they did here was that through direct action and campaigns, they were they were winning big for individual workers. Um, how our relationship then sort of progressed with Setul was um, through the MFE table, um, their and you know their their campaigns were aligned with everyone else's. They also decided because so many workers who were coming into the worker center to because through for wage theft issues and stuff and such were um, workers in the retail janitorial yeah, industry, or a particular industry. Yeah, yeah, that they decided that they would take that industry on as a campaign, right. which was a very different thing for them to do and I think and and they were really on the cutting edge of worker centers doing that yeah. th- this kind of work of taking on an industry and so um, at, and we represent commercial office janitors 
um, and the union is uh, is over ninety percent. Uh, the the market is over ninety percent union dense. Um, and the standards are like drastically different between a janitor who cleans a corporate office right now it makes like 14 40 some an hour mm -hmm. with healthcare benefits with vacation etc um, and a non-union janitor in a retail store makes minimum wage 725 eight dollars an hour maybe right. so working seven days a week right working seven days a week and other that, right and also and all sorts of wage stuff and horrible mm -hmm. things going on. Um, as a result of all of their work, a few things happened. One was that they, um, in ways that the, I don't think anyone expected, the market became much more consolidated, right. right? That there had been a whole bunch of, this retail market was always just full of uh, mom and pop um, janitorial right. companies that if they're like, if they lose a wage and hour lawsuit or right. whatever, they just fold as a company, right. disappear, go somewhere else. Impossible to chase. Very, exactly. Yeah. And so the big box com um, retailers here, having had the, you know, bright spotlight of like said to well, placed on the practices that are going on in their stores, ended up started like getting rid of those mom and pop contractors and going to larger national contractors. And so that together the, so that basically created a world where our retail market now they're really four or five big players mm -hmm. so that really changed the sort of the the um, the, the, uh, the our thinking on the even the possibility of organizing the the workers okay. right um because it was it looks more now it looks more like what our commercial office um, market looks like a, a finite number of contractors who all who you know they come to the table with us and everyone you know makes the same wages and benefits so that the companies are competing with each other on something other than on the backs of workers right, right? they're not competing by who can slash wages the most um so so what we so so that um, the fact that the market became consolidated first, like sort of opened the possibility, of, like oh, like this this might be a market that we can organize along the lines, of the ways in which we are comfortable doing, which we know how to organize, we know how to organize. But then second, and one thing that we've done for a while was went through a process where Setul, um, uh, dis and the the members of Setul, their, their board. Um, uh, and SAU Local 26 decided to work together um, and on this retail um, market campaign um, with an understanding that, a formalized understanding, that when we win for these workers, that, the, that they will be members of a union, but they will be joint members of SAU Local 26 mm -hmm. and Setul. And that's a real, like to my mind, I, I like now we're actually... I think close to a point where that might th that's actually going to happen. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm certain of it. Um, and at the it's beginning, a it was a, model, it's a completely it new model, right? The whole the whole idea workers. is, you know, I think there are lots of us in the labor movement who've been thinking for a while, like we need to figure out what are the new forms of work right. organization. And I think there'll be lots of different things: some traditional collective bargaining, some peer worker center, and some I hope you know along these lines where like sort of a meld of the two. Our, our thought being that, 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 that the union will do the servicing of the contract negotiation of the contract with those employers, um, but that the members um, in the retail industry, being joint members of Setul and Local 26, the resources that they put in through their dues furthers the work of the worker center right. as it works in, into other industries and other communities and such. Um, so, I mean, I think it's, in, it's incredibly exciting and um, uh, and I, I hope is the beginning of, you know, I don't think we've figured out exactly what the, you know, the next, next thing is, but it's, but yeah. it's, but, but that's what, what I think is one of the things that's really exciting about where we're at now. Because I think what I hear you saying too, with, uh, at least with Zadul is that it's hard for us to catch up to how the economy is changing and these worker yeah. centers being on the ground, having yeah. the first contact with folks as they end up developing problems in the workplace are able to sort of figure it out and think about how it works. Yeah. That, and like I see put it this way, when there are folks in the uh, union movement who talk about how we, we need a rebirth of a labor movement. Um, we've been and saying that for 40 years now. People have right? been saying it for 40 <laughs> years. And I, I, don't even, I don't even say that. I, I, tr I try to say, you know, we, we need a new workers movement. Right. And, that's, and, and because the word labor movement, I think at this point, is so associated with a very particular set of institutions. Yeah. We yeah. do a very peculiar thing in the labor movement where we define membership so strictly. Yeah. You know, like the U.S. labor movement defines 
members of the movement by dues-paying members of unions. Right. Now, if you think of any other movement in history, that's no one would define member like the civil rights movement. Like you didn't have to belong to <laughs> the NAACP yeah. or the, this right, right. to be a card-carrying member of the movement right. in a way that people think of like late, the labor movement, right. right? And and so like you know, I, I mean, why wouldn't you think that people who come out to an action in support of workers aren't they a part of the labor movement? You right. know, even if they're not themselves in in a union. Um, and aren't worker centers a part of the labor movement since they're organizing in workplaces for worker justice? Yeah. And, um, and so I, I think that what the worker centers are doing is, uh, is, is looking at the economy as it is today and, and organizing for power within that economy as it is. And I think the labor movement is by and large, when people say we need to provide the labor movement, like my answer to that is like, look, employers have already figured out a response, yeah. like the answer to the to the the solution to the problem we present them with a renewed labor movement along its current lines. Yeah. Like if we could, we like right now the labor movement, the AFL-CIO, it's still structured along the lines of an economy that literally just doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, right. You know, the the, the, the like the unions at the table um, at the at the AFL-CIO, whether it's here in Minnesota or nationally, that can unions that that can sometimes like stay like stand in the way of either a political program or a campaign or something like this are unions in industries that are dying. Right, yeah. they have like a handful of members, and yet they that you they know still dictate a they lot still of dictate right for the movement right right and so yeah. um, so that's where I I think that to me the worker centers not only are part of uh, of a workers movement, but they're they're the cutting edge and what we all need to be doing. So I mean, um, I think what I'm trying to get back to, at least with the MFE piece, is mm -hmm. do you think that you're developing a model for how to organize workers with this sort of MFE public alignment piece, with this worker center, you know, sort yep. of working with people on the ground where they are piece? Yep, I think that's that's what our that's what our goal is. That's what mm -hmm. we're what we've and there's a lot of different policy arenas that the. Various organizations work in, yeah, sure. but but what the MFE table has allowed us to do is to combine, you know, the some of the policy work that's happening with worker organizing. Yeah. So in the la last legislative session in Minnesota, where we passed the minimum wage, whenever there was a press conference um, about the minimum wage, the workers that were that spoke at those at press conference were almost always workers involved in campaigns of either knock of Setul of, of local 26 yeah. like it was airport workers or local 26 is organizing or now view like and that was a, that was a concerted effort on our part like we'd say like we we will we wanted our you know our, our folks who are fighting for a union or fighting in these various campaigns to be the the voice of that to connect it to worker organizing yeah, because I think, I think it's like I worked a lot with interfaith organizations in Los Angeles, but it was always different because they were just kind of invited to be at the press conference. Mm -hmm. They weren't invited to be a part of the of the visioning of the base building. Right. And it seems like that's fairly distinctive here. Yeah. Well, that's that's, I think, one of the things about MFE that's unique is that from the very beginning that the table of organizations, like although it was Fight for Fair Economy was funded initially entirely by SEIU. Mm -hmm. And Minnesota, we did not SEIU write a plan and then invite friends to right. come become a part of it. We were, we developed a plan with the partners. Right. Um, so it was always a plan that belonged to everyone but under one guiding assumption. Right. Exactly. Right. But it was but it was developed and that yeah. that's like Not if the you, there's right there's yeah. just always huh. going to be a power dynamic. If you write a plan and then invite others to help you implement your plan, like. That there's always a, a you know just a dynamic where right. you're in charge, and, you know that. And you're also more likely to be inviting organizations that aren't going to be challenging you, or are therefore less powerful. Right. To some extent. Right. Because you're right. Exactly. Just like yeah. go use some money, be a part of this. Right. Right. Huh. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. It's exciting stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, tell me a little bit about yourself, Javier. I you know I realized when I was, I was doing these podcasts, I always, I always started chronologically because I'm a story maybe. Mm -hmm. And that was always end up being really boring because people mm -hmm. want to understand why it is that we're talking you know, uh -huh. background stuff like that. And then we can get into personal stuff once people right. invested a little bit. Sure. You know. Sure. So I think people want always want to find out. Yeah. You know. Um. So so what do you want to know? <laughs> <laughs> where did you Where were you born? Where, I was. Where did you come up? 
I was born in the canal zone of Panama. I was born in a place that no longer exists. <laughs> it's sure. On the military base at the canal zone. My dad. Yeah, I guess most army. people have born in places that still exist. Yeah. <laughs> as my person no longer exists which I also thought I always thought until John McCain that that meant I could never run for president because right. that's, I was always told that but I was born on foreign soil I think they probably just told you that because you're a person of color that's true, that's true. And if it had <laughs> been me it would have been an issue it's all coded yeah, <laughs> like it yeah, would have been yeah. an issue but he was born in the same place I was yeah, in the right. canals in Panama um, and, but I was only there like 11 days when my mom and brothers and I were sent to Puerto Rico where my parents are from okay. and my dad was sent to Vietnam his second tour to Vietnam uh, he did that a year, he was an in infantry in Vietnam. He came back, we got orders to go to Texas. We were there three years. Um, actually, interestingly, he got third orders to go to Vietnam as, almost as soon as he got back. Wow. But there was, at the time, this was 1971, mm. and there was a lot of attention finally being shown on the, uh, shown on the fact that, that men of color were being drafted at higher rates. Right. And the Congressional Black Caucus actually did these hearings across this, the, the country, and they came to my dad's base. And they, hmm. their, their, um, uh, their hearing sort of uncovered that basically my dad's battalion, that um, that African American his specific battalion. That his, yeah, I mean it was, but in his specific battalion, that African American right. and Latino soldiers were being given third orders to go to Vietnam. It's a larger phenomenon that was being Which, represented. Yeah, and so they pulled back the orders of the African American and Latino soldiers Jeez. and sent like, like white soldiers. It's that arbitrary. They just do it that quickly too. Right. right. As much as they can send them, they also can yep. pull them back. So the yeah, mm. congressional black caucus probably saved my dad's life. Um, and so we, we were there, ended up being there three years, uh, Germany three years, then moved back to Puerto Rico with the, when I was seven. That was supposed to be just another three-year tour. But um, my mom, in the middle of that, got pretty sick, and we like the, the illness lasted a while, and so we had to, it kept extending. And so mm. we, ended, we ended up staying until like I graduated from high school okay. there. So I grew up in Puerto Rico, but I grew up, I had this very... Um, bizarre upbringing in Puerto Rico because I grew up on a military base on a US military oh. base so it's mostly Puerto Rican soldiers and like like my the schools it's a so department of defense school on a colony yeah but you know but like in in Puerto Rico like my dad joined the army because in 1961 like there were not there, sure. were, there were no avenues for people to get out of poverty sure, right sure. Me and my mom were very poor joined the army and but, but like so in the on the military base where I grew up in like that I went to the Department of Defense school there actually the student body is about 95 percent Puerto Rican mm -hmm. but the curriculum and like everything else about the school was like hyper hyper American like like we had homecoming kings and queens like no other Puerto Rican high school <laughs> like we had a football team and no one else like like you had American <laughs> football no play? one gives a shit well th like these others <laughs> the, these other expat schools but they uh, were really sucked and like and so right, like we practically had to beg people to have to, to create a football team so that we could beat them like it was just bizarre like and and we'd have like pep rallies and so it still like, has that kind of colonial position then I mean, it's, in, in subtle but more yeah I mean it was just like I I grew up so like we were when when we were up in Puerto Rico. My siblings and I were the only people in our family who were in our extended family who were bilingual. Right. Now now it's very different. Right, right. Uh, there, um, but um, mm. but yeah, like in high school, like we did American musicals, like. I, I was Professor Held Hill in the Music Man in an, in an all Puerto Rican cast. <laughs> Shut up to Music Man, which we didn't call it that. It was just the Music Man, but um, we, yeah. I mean, it was just this hyper hyper sort of American. We, I mean, we had that too. And I mean, we when I was growing up in Los Angeles, it was like ninety percent Latino. We would do the Pledge of Allegiance and Porcas. Oh, we did. They didn't yeah. speak English though. Like yeah. almost spoke English, so we were just kind of mouthing things. Yeah. I was blown away and just recent, recently heard because I don't have kids but heard that like they don't do the Pledge of Allegiance oh, in don't? schools anymore no apparently it's like because it, um, I think there were laws because some religions it's like it's against their faith to, right. so people don't do it anymore I was like what the fuck like I grew, <laughs> I grew up not only we did the Pledge of Allegiance every morning and sang like my country tis of thee and <laughs> yeah, sometimes right, 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 like right. America the beautiful and like yeah yeah yeah, so I think I was the most English out. proficient among my peers, and even, you know, even yeah. then we didn't really know what we were saying. Yeah, no. so it was this weird. Yeah, yeah. So that so I grew up. That's how I, that that was my upbringing in Puerto Rico, and then I went to college in the states. Um, uh, went to to Yale University for did my undergrad was, degree what there. Was that like? It was. 
it was it's interesting because it fucks you up after the fact like well, yeah. it fucked me up after the fact because yeah. it was like I so I grew up on this well you realize what poverty is and you realize what wealth is a little bit yeah but in weird ways yeah. right oh, like sure. so like I be, growing up because we were we were bilingual we were like the first people in Puerto Rico to have cable TV now everyone has cable TV but on the military <laughs> base I, like so like American pop culture like I just knew it and so like okay. it didn't even occur to me that I would that I would feel any kind of culture shock going to the U.S. I didn't, you know, we didn't have money. I wasn't able to visit colleges. Like, I applied to Yale because some recruiters came to my high school. I didn't even go to the the thing that my counselor called me up later and he's like, hey, the recruiters left some stuff for you. They think you should apply. So, like, I applied and then I got in and my English teacher's like, you don't say no to Yale. I'm like, all right. (laughs) So, (laughs) there you go. So, I I went, I had, you know, I had not visited. Also, geographically, too, it's colder over there. It's the Northeast. Yeah, but but I always, like, I, I mean, for a lot of reasons, I think when I was from when I was very young, I always knew I was going to go to college in the states, mm-hmm. and I didn't. Um, you say states, but I mean, how does that work? Because you're qualifying the United States differently than. Yeah, I mean that's that's how that's what we say. Same role. That's what yeah, that's right, what we say yeah. there on the other like, like to the mainland. We always refer to it as North America. Yeah, no, we say we say this. We say that, or like yeah, to the, the states. We say, I'm going to go to states. So um, <laughs> as opposed well to the island, but. Right, um, right, right. Uh, but I always like, and I, I you know, I, that when I was in high school, I didn't think of it this way. I think now looking back, I was extremely, you know, I was a gay kid growing up in Puerto Rico and did not, and, and this military base and family and stuff. And, um, I didn't know that's why I like desperately wanted to come to the States, but eventually mm. I figured out, you know, that it was being away. Um, well, we can't articulate these things when right. you're young. It's just hard right. to right. get our heads around it. Yeah. And so, so it wasn't until I left, until I graduated from Yale that I really wrapped my brain around what Yale is, what a place like Yale is. It's yeah. like, it's just, it's a factory yeah. that, that produces a product and that product is elites, right. you know, and like you... Um, it's producing cultural capital in a really intensive way. Right, right. and yeah. so like no matter what people study, like it are just all these fields... Like my like Austin Goolsby, who is like the president's senior economic advisor of Obama's in his first term, he was my sophomore year roommate. Sure. Like, and my partner and I used to laugh all the time. We would be on the news and be like, "Oh, I know that person. Yeah. Or that person." And he'd be like, "What the fuck? Like, what? You know?" Yeah. Um, and it's that's just what it, but what it is, you know. It's like, um, and and I didn't, you know, you know, you know when you're there. Like my freshman year, lived across the the hall from a dude whose last name was Pillsbury as in the Doughboy um, and cause I think his family actually is actually from Minnesota I think it is yeah, yeah. yeah um, and um, like his he had a cousin who lived in the same dorm room as uh, entryway a floor up this woman named Heidi she actually between them they had 14 cousins at Yale at that time I mean think about that Jesus it, for, like and she had been kicked out of two prep schools for drug use, she still got into Yale. Yeah. Yeah. He was just, like and so Legacy. every every yeah. year when they have like was John know. did John go to Yale too? No, no, no. We right. met in graduate school in years later, right. University of Michigan. But um, but yeah. So that, like that that was the stuff. That, like like so every See, year we'd have the obligatory yeah. debate about affirmative action. We we're like, yeah, but this family has sixteen fucking cousins. Right. How's that, that out of like, affirmative action? It's like, like they're that. They're, yeah. that's quite the meritocracy. And try to imagine a Latino kid who gets kicked out of two schools for drug use, <laughs> getting to, getting to well, not, any college, well, not, not being alone. in prison. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So um, my, my buddy went to law school there, and I went to go visit her once. And I was just like overwhelmed by like just how it incubates the, these particular communities and this particular wealth. Yeah, just like the sense of entitlement and like the sense of dominance that emerges yeah. out of it, those schools. But it's also it's a campus without cars, so right. It's very so it's much, very dense. Right, but you also like there aren't like you can't have a car on. You just can't on have campus. a car. It's not they don't prohibit it, but there's really there's literally nowhere to put it, and everyone lives on campus right. mostly, and and so there's no space and and, and cars are such a symbol of like that's when you. I think can really see where right. like who the wealthy where people are and who not and all the prep school kids I don't know if this is still true but back then they dressed like shit so <laughs> like <laughs> so you you know the dorm like like the people with the ripped jeans like my mom would never let me go right, out in right, fucking right, ripped right, jeans right, yeah. right but like so I went to school with like nice clothes and they all looked like hell so it took me a while to figure out I was like oh they're the rich ones yeah you know? but well, because like, I think for me too, my dad would always pressure me to perform and not look like a mess because right. he was like, we, right. already, we already perceived to be terrible. Right, no, exactly. We have to try to like at least aesthetically get beyond that. Yeah. And now I have a 
burly beard because I'm tired of that. Yeah. No, it took it, it, it took years before I would stop. Like we used to dr- have to dress up to get on an airplane. Yeah, right, right. We right, just right, dress right, really, right. really nice to get on an airplane. Like there was a lot such of pressure. a such a, a revelation as an adult to be like, you know, I can just dress comfortably and get right. on a plane. No, I'm <laughs> I don't put on sweatpants and I enjoy my flight. Yeah. Thank you very much. Right. Right. So um so yeah, so I did I went there, then I went to graduate school. Um uh, and was in graduate school like a long time, far How many long. years? Uh, I, mean, I started at UC San Diego. Oh, that's where you got your master's. So I, I, well, I started a PhD program there. Then I transferred to the University of Michigan to a joint program in anthropology and history. Okay. And so when I came to Minnesota in 2000, it was... It's kind of a rare thing to do for a PhD student to like transfer. Yes. It's not... I hated San Diego. The term doesn't even come up. You don't like San Diego? I, I what did you like about San Diego? Diego. Um, the military stuff? No, that's I'm used to that. Yeah, that's right. fine. That makes sense. No. Most of us from LA don't. That's why we don't like San Diego. No, um, well, it was the conser- it's, it's the conservative. Very conservative. Stuff. Yeah. That that was the stuff that especially within a state that has a reputation for being yeah. liberal. And I and I didn't. So I didn't have a car then, and you, you just can't live. You can't yeah. freaking. And so, like, I would. Li- I was living in downtown La Jolla, and I would like take the 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 bus onto campus right uh it's just a few stops but like my my stop that i got on was like the first stop dropping off work people who are going to work in down in la jolla and these like nice houses so you know you get on the bus in san diego everyone speaks to you in spanish because there's like if you're on the fucking bus like you're like (laughs) obviously you're latino (laughs) so so and like just the absolute hypocrisy of like how people in that area i knew how they voted yeah um but all have you know undocumented workers working in their yeah, homes. Yeah, they're, like they're, they're, right. they're very wealthy, and they hate that. Back then, it was like very anti-immigrant, except yeah. their own personal like their servants. So they're okay yeah. with. Um, There's a line, and they like all the yeah. the nanny line because it's all the folks that are going yep. from East LA to Beverly Hills. And yep. It's like an hour ride, and yeah, super it's uncomfortable. Nuts. Yeah, so it was. So it was like that. It was the hypocrisy of all that. The you know the weddings all right, but I grew up in Puerto Rico, so right, I wasn't that impressed by, by that. And then um, and I and I just didn't love my program there. That my my his, the history program there was pretty traditional, and I was looking it for is, more interdisciplinary. Rigid, yeah. I was looking for more kind of interdisciplinary work, and then University of Michigan was exactly you know what I, okay. I wanted. So. so you ended up in Michigan. University of Michigan, and it was I was working on a PhD when I came to Minnesota. In 2000. Um, Were you just like lecturing or? I had a pre-doctoral fellowship to teach at Carleton College. Okay. Um, and it was supposed to be a one-year thing. This was in 2000. I, they extended it a year. And then my third year, I taught at McAllister. So yeah. It was a leave replacement for the Latin American historian while I was applying for the tenure track job at Carleton. Okay. Um, Carleton did like the thing that. And you were finishing your doctorate. I was finishing my doctorate. And then, like, so I still have three out of five, chapters. three chapters of a five-chapter dissertation uh, <laughs> written somewhere. Yeah. Um, but uh, but kind of a bunch of things sort of coincided at once. One was that, like, Carleton did what academic institutions are just, like, do so typically. Like, when I when I left, they were like, you're coming back. This job is for you. This job is for you. Like, and then I didn't get the job. Right. Um, what did they get instead? I don't remember. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Some other guy. Curious. Um, but uh, so there was a combination of sort of feel of that, and that was the fall of 2002. And so it was the fall that we were like heading into war. Yeah. Um, so you're feeling disillusioned about academia as a whole. Academia as a whole. And you're facing the sort of. Yeah. And then, beats. and then this, right, there was, the, there was a war. It was Wellstone voting against the war and then, then and dying mm. uh, in his plane crash. And. Uh, and that death in particular just really making me think, like, you know, I, like I had... Because like, I, think, I think that moment is, is, sits with so many people here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Really no, it's, it's a, I think there's a whole generation of people in Minnesota who, like, I had completely different careers. And because it of that took, moment. And because of that moment just mm-hmm. completely changed to do something else with their lives. And, you know, the, and it was absolutely that for me. Um, what it did was sort of bring together, like, I, I had for years resisted this idea of like the ivory tower mm-hmm. you know like i like the reason i wanted i wanted to become an academic was because i beca- i came to political and intellectual consciousness when i was in college and i was right. like it, me it was about being a part of yeah. young people's development yeah. at that moment being an activist that's, scholar. that's right yeah. and and so i resisted the notion of the ivory tower for a long time and then but then just eventually just realized that it's, it's actually in this country it's actually just true that that academic institutions not only don't reward 
engaged scholarship. No, they, they punish it. Like the more accessible you write, the less likely you are to be tenured. Right. Um, I mean, even junior colleges now are asking for like multiple publications. That was whereas the, ten years they didn't. That was the thing about the name Carlton. It was like yeah. the, the chair of the department at the time was someone who had one publication and it was a book review. <laughs> and that dude was judging my scholarship. I'm like, what the fuck? Oh, I, <laughs> like, see, I was yeah. like, I already had three articles published. I'm like, really? You're gonna like okay. Right, right. Um, but yeah, no, the standards are way different. And, and I think what we've seen in the last five years is, that, is the sort of the naked truth that the schools are becoming very privatized yep. because of the lack of money from states and yeah. encouragement of public institutions to seek their own money. Yep. And then and then more and more like working like contingent faculty right. is just like more adjuncts. Like more adjuncts and, yeah. 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 I mean I think I'm a similar moment with my PhD where I'm just just one getting tired of it and two but taking seriously the sort of contribution I want to make in the world. Right. You know, and I can't just keep pretending like I can finish my doctorate whilst working full time and pretending like it's actually worthwhile to even right. finish it. Yeah. You know, I've, I've, I thought, like, occasionally I'll have this thought of, like, you know, hiring an editor to put the rest of it all together, you know, and, do and just do it. something, and, you know, just have, and who cares, right? <laughs> who I mean, it's like, so it, what would like, I, like, what would I do with it? Like, make my, <laughs> make my friends call me doctor? Like, <laughs> you could, like, publish it yourself, Dr. Maria, do you? I can only, no. And then, well, at this point, it's out, I'm sure they'll behind and, right, you're not, you know, I've not kept up with, right, whatever, kept up in the movement in the academy, so, it's fine. The world will have to live without my intellectual contribution. Yeah. Not that one, at that least. One. Yeah, yeah. That, <laughs> in particular around colonial Spanish. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. But you know the the way in see what I what I the relationship I see between what I used to study and what I do now is my dissertation was about colonial knowledge, mm. and um, it's the, it starts out with looking at this guy um, Valeriano Whaler, who was a general. In the Philippines, putting down the Philippine insurrection, late 19th century Spanish Empire, uh, up the Peasant Rebellion. And how he did that was using campos de concentración, mm. concentration camps. That's, the phrase actually comes from Spanish. Mm. Um, and it was created in the Philippines then. And it was the, the strategy was to move all the, the rural populations that were in rebellion, like concentrating the populations, like so displacing people from their homes, mm. so they're in more manageable spaces. Um, he did that so well that the Spanish government then sent him to Cuba to put down the Cuban rebellion, doing the same thing. Mm. And so the actual the Rand, William Randolph Hearst newspapers, the all the like with the butcher of Havana, that he was called the butcher of Havana. In fact, then when they were be, you know the drumbeat of war to get for the Spanish American War, it was all about this guy Valeriano Whaler, and mm. it was about his campos de concentración. Um, and so at the 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 sort of thesis of the of the dissertation was that that the that the, the the strength of the colonial state was in its ability to, to produce and control knowledge in a way that they can take the lessons learned in one place and apply them elsewhere. Right. Um, and that was th that was something that was not available to resistors for the most part. Like where where Filipinos and Cubans and Puerto Ricans, if they met with each, with each other, where they where that would happen was in Spain because if they were from Creole families, that they go to college in Spain in the metropole, and yeah. then there, like Jose Rizal and Jose Marti were in Spain at the same time. Mm -hmm. They never their paths never crossed, and the Cubans actually the Cuban Criollos were actually quite racist about the Filipinos. So mm -hmm. there was so there was. The, the impossibility of kind of of doing the same thing of learning the strategies of one to resist and applying them elsewhere and that's very different in the world today like that's like to me what i what is uh what is the world that we are living in the pot the potential that we have for creating a different world is so much it, it, it's so much greater when we have things like you know podcasts or whatever you have a, you have an ability to create we have, we can create our own narratives yeah. and create our own news and we see this happening you know all over yeah, like the from you know from from de Marcos yep. to like everything down the, the Arab Spring like Arab Spring was sort of the next phase of like couldn't happen without Twitter like and um and so that like to me that's what the what the work about creating of creating justice now is about is about democratizing knowledge in a yep. way that just in the 19th century was much more difficult to impossible to do yeah no and I, I think I think when I started my doctorate, I thought of it as a way of disseminating information and things that I thought were important. And I just kind of got over that and figured out that I could do these podcasts, I could do other stuff mm -hmm. as a more effective way of disseminating information. Right, right. You know, and telling those stories. Yeah. 
right? Because ultimately, no one's going to read your dissertation, right? And I wouldn't be offended by that, yeah. Because I know how boring it is too. Yeah, I know. You know? I know. I know. I try to be artful in my writing, but yeah, like, it's funny. I had, a, I had an article published in this, um, in a book, a collection of books, and they and I didn't know this, but the the editor made it the 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 first article so it was okay. so it was reviewed and so every every review reviews my article and so then i got it started getting this i was already like president of of the union when i, <laughs> I started getting invitations to conferences to like speak. i'm like I, i'm done with that i don't do that anymore sorry yeah, guys yeah, yeah. like I'm not spinning it was like, game anymore. like oh now academia wants me fuck you guys <laughs> <laughs> yeah I don't know, I mean, because I think, I think there's, gonna, there's a lot of PhD students out there that are thinking about what to do with their doctorate and whether yeah. it's even worthwhile to finish it. Yeah. We're really, we're really being challenged by that because yeah. I see most of my friends that are intellectually, like, very very good at what they do. Right. Getting stuck being adjuncts for five years. Right, no, and it's crazy. And yeah. being in Cook and, the, like, you have tens of thousand dollars in debt. There's yeah. absolutely no prospect for ever making no. a salary that would pay that off. And what the fuck, what is this, what's that about? It's just Unless crazy. the sciences, but yeah. Yeah, right. Right, unless you're the sciences, and then you can get Cargill or someone to, to pay you to right. or you come up with the research for them. Or you'll be that good. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Or you'll be better at blowing up bombs. Yeah. yeah. So what's next for SEIU? What, what um, for us at, at Local 26, and what's I think. next for Javier? What are your, what are your own focuses in this position? Like, what do you, what do you aside from, like, MFE and mm-hmm. we talked about earlier? Well, so the... As much as you want to talk about it. Yeah, um... So I do a lot of work in politics. When I when I first sort of changed careers and decided I wasn't going to be an academic anymore, and after Wellstone, I started working in political campaigns. And when I got a job at SAU, I thought it was going to be a first job in politics, not a first job in the labor movement. Mm-hmm. And what I very quickly realized, especially when I when I started working here at the local with members, was that if I had gone into politics the way that I thought I was going to that I would have eventually felt about that world the way I did about academia. Um, yeah. Like I know a lot of people like democratic operatives or policy people who are working on very good, solid, progressive things, but who like, don't know any poor people. Like don't like they, mm. they like, and be, our lives are so segmented in society. Um, and, and even if you're not rich by like, being educated, you like having a college education, like if you're not actively seeking out a diverse environment, for yourself, you can very easily segment yourself into seeing right. they're like never seen other worlds, and this work just you know you like I I love the political voice that I have and that the union has, but you know you can't help but be grounded in reality. Yeah, keep when, you honest. Yeah, you just have to be grounded in reality because you're when you negotiate contracts that make the difference between someone getting a raise or not. Like that's very real. Well, you have a constituency too, and you right. There's a base, right, right, and so the um, so I I do a lot of the political work with the union, um, and I do quite a bit of uh, of from that started doing kind of punditry stuff, like just sort of progressive progressive perspective on like some political talk shows, things like that, and so um, that's kind of a, a related, not exactly sort of job related, but sort of tangentially related thing that I do um, and then uh, and then more recently I started getting really involved in um, in storytelling mm-hmm. um, and like story slams and things like that some of some of the stories that I've told are social justice related mm-hmm. work related some are completely not at all um, I remember when we were at a fundraiser and I just was like hey Javier anything new you're like oh yeah I told a story and blah 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 I was like what yeah, yeah. okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's, it's, it's been uh, yeah this has been really fun this has been really fun that's last weekend or two weekends ago it's part of the moth stories well, the grand slam they, I mean uh, yeah, you know I don't know exactly why you do it but like I think I think for those of us that are in the movement it's like we need things that are outlets that aren't related to exactly. like right. every day because yeah. we need to stay healthy somehow right no exactly yeah. or, or even or even if you even if a story I'm telling is work related it's just like I, I actually think that it's social medium, justice workers are uh, like all have really great stories oh, to absolutely. tell, and and actually you know it's a it's can be a part of the work is to find a different genre through which yeah. to tell the the story. So I've been doing you know a, a lot of that, which has been a lot of fun. Um, and in terms of kind of where we're going, you know, we're the the, the, the local right now. We think we're taking on this, creating a retail janitorial market similar to our existing. Um, uh, commercial that office, clean rocket, yeah, yeah, and that's so that's a huge undertaking. It's a big I project. think that it's a big yeah. project, and I, but I also think it's a really like 
I'd like, I, uh, in 2010, took a leave from work here with the permission of our board um, to lead SAU's national immigration campaign. What did for sort of five months there was to try to get the union to focus on immigration work um, less as just a massive lobbying operation and more of like like we do other campaigns of sort of creating a crisis. And I felt strongly then and still do that until more people feel the crisis, like it isn't gonna be resolved. Um, still urgency. Yeah, yeah. And, and back then when that happened, we had at, at 26 in 2009, um, had an immigration audit, an I-9 audit, that uh, like 12, uh, over 1,200 of our members lost their jobs. Jesus, wow. And then we had, this is under Obama, and they had another audit where 250 members lost their jobs. Is that when Chipotle had a bunch of problems too? Is that when uh, it was a larger... Yep. Okay. It was a part of the same thing like I-9 audits. And we did a lot of work on that Chipotle. Like we had a campaign on Chipotle where our goal with that campaign was to get the Chipotle... Get to, get, when when they first fired workers, Chipotle's, Chipotle's line was the same as any employer. Mm. was like, we didn't know they were undocumented, right? right. Um, which is bullshit, right? Um... But through our campaign, actually got the got Chipotle. Now the CEO of Chipotle is to the left of the AFL-CIO <laughs> on immigration reform. Huh. He is out there and like vocal as shit. Well, they have that crazy TV like, show where they go after corporate agriculture too. They made yeah. A show on oh Hulu. yeah. No, exactly. Right. Well, no, this dude like, and yeah, I'm convinced like he he like that our campaign had a, a lot to do with this guy like ba- like just, challenging just him. really yeah to to say like you're like it's not okay for a company like Chipotle to be saying oh we didn't just know that's bullshit you didn't know yeah. like no one in the service sector certainly anyone who touches food can pretend to not know what the immigration problem right. is in this country, like what that broke, fucked up laws are. Like, and they stopped pretending and they said, yes, we can't, we can't do our work mm. with, our, with, our, with the laws as they are. Um, and he does not believe, like he's out there, like no one guest workers, no one, he's mm. like, nope, people need, like way out there. And that was, it was, that was, it was great. Like, and that, the germs of that was a campaign we did here mm. Um, uh, when they did the, the audits, and that was sort of after we had had that big experience. When, when our audit happened, the fifteen, the twelve hundred um, person one, like I talked to uh, immigration attorneys across the country, and everyone's like, "We've never seen anything this big." Like it, and but then within weeks, it was like all over. Like within weeks, then there was the the American Apparel mm. one in LA, right? And then it be, then it became clear that it was the Obama's administration sort of softer, gentler raids. Um, and it took us a long time to uh, get them to understand how, like, that in this in this weird way, what the I nine audits were doing was like, what, like, yes, you didn't have the you know the militarized raids of the, right. of the Bush era, but the I nine audits were actually in some ways more pernicious in that what they do is actually feed the very underground economy that 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 exploits a broken immigration system and so our members who are not depressing anyone's wages as as union janitors um were actually rising raising wages for for all union janitors um many of them like ended up working in jobs like at dump bodies paid for yeah or like paid cash or whatever paid minimum wage or under and so they're actually feeding the very underground economy that like just feasts off of this bullshit system it's oh. fascinating. Yeah. yeah. All right. We're near an hour. Is there anything else you want to? No. It's well, thanks a lot, Javier. Good. Thank you. Appreciate the time. Cool. Yeah. Thank you.